Why, why don't they just switch it off? <laughs> well, well, okay. So is, it, is there not like a breaker, like a main switch? Well, well, no. Is there enough? I'm stuck inside here. Is there an off switch? No. Ah, uh, but it turns out that his interaction with Rorschach has left Doctor Long with the worst dinner table chat in the universe. He has no small talk. And then there's, then there's that little bloke in the background who goes, Million voices. <laughs> Where do you get these songs from? Honestly. Hello and welcome to part two of Shark Liver Royal's coverage of Watchmen. Did you hear the did you hear the little pick up of the book as I checked the title? <laughs> I was gonna say you were you were you were just about to say Game of Thrones then, weren't you? <laughs> it's hard to get out of the habit, but we have left Game of Thrones behind and now we're doing Watchmen. Uh, by Alan Moore and Dave Gibbons. It's a bit different for us because this is a graphic novel rather than um, a traditional novel, um, as we said in the introduction to last time. So this is part two. We're going to be going from chapters four to six. Uh, so it's really easy to, to read along with us. Um, no page numbers or anything like that. Just read from chapter four to chapter six. Easy as that. So, I'm Matt. I'm Dave. Hello. Okay, let's get cracking. <laughs> let's. All right, okay. So, um... Uh, like we said last week, uh, I'm the one guiding us through a particular story because this is the first comic book that Matt has ever read that doesn't have, like, Dennis the Menace and Nasher in it. Um, so uh, out of this extremely small talent pool, I know a bit more about comic books. Would people get really, like... I mean, people absolutely love this because it is a, such, a super, such a popular book. Would, would people be angry with the term comic? Ah, well, that's a very interesting question. And I actually... Some people might, but I think that was more kind of back when, back when comics literally were Dennis the Menace and Nasher and Superman. Yeah, funny, yeah, you know, comics were funny. They were comic. <laughs> um, yeah. But um, I actually I did a bit of reading over the last week, and as it turns out, Alan Moore himself, his preferred term is comic book. And there's oh, cool. there's a lot of quite a lot of the people who have really kind of broken new ground in the format. They're all like, no, just call it comics. <laughs> Like whatever, do you know what I mean? Like even even like, do you know Art Spiegelman? You heard of this name? Uh, no. Amazing. Uh, I get a feeling I should have done. Yeah, sort of because he won he won a Pulitzer Prize for the comic book that he wrote. Um, oh. <laughs> um, yeah, no, it's called Mouse, and it's um, it's like it's about his father's experience in the concentration camps of Nazi Germany, using you know um, mice to represent uh, his father and and the Jewish. Uh, community and cats to represent the the um, the Nazis, and it works just incredibly well. But even he calls it comics, and uh, you know, do you know what I mean? If you're writing about that sort of really heavy stuff and you're still calling it comics, I'm gonna mm. I'm gonna hand it over to you. To be honest, that's um, that's <laughs> so I don't know. I I think I think consensus is that if you do object to the term comics, you're taking it a bit too seriously. But mm. I don't know. Okay. So I th- so I think we're all right then. I think I hope. At Shark Liver Oil on Twitter, by the way, if you think that I'm full of shit and that we should call on graphic novels and show the proper fucking respect. Um, right, so this week uh, we're starting off um, in chapter four, and um, this is one of the. I don't know if you picked this up when you were reading it, but um, this is one of the chapters where we get quite a lot of backstory. Like, we seem to get the uh, uh, an issue which deals with like what's going on in the world right now and then we have an issue which tells us some of the backstory of one of these kind of major characters 
Mm. Um, did you pick that up, by the way? Because I've read it so many times, I only really noticed this this time out. Uh, yeah, that you're going back and forth with his, his sort of story. Yeah, no, but I mean, generally, like, you'll have one chapter that talks about, like, the new stuff, and then you'll have one mm. chapter that talks about the old stuff, and then oh, one right, chapter, yeah, like, yeah. back and forth and that. Right, so, so it is just me yeah. who's that unobservant in, in reading it. Uh, yeah, no, I didn't really... I suppose I, 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 I do recognise that, but I didn't really think much about it till you mentioned it. Yeah, yeah right, okay. Right, so we have Dr. Manhattan... He's on Mars, and shit has got philosophical. Yeah, I, I love this chapter. You did? I was going to ask that. Yeah. Like, what did you make of it? Absolutely love it. It's, um, you got a real, a real sense of the character, and it explores some really interesting ideas about what would happen to you if you became sort of almost godlike mm. and, uh, and sort of it's really weird because it's because it, as you said it it tells his history um, but all, but it tells it all in the present as if he <laughs> he's kind of he's kind of fallen out of time hasn't he this guy who's become Dr. Manhattan mm, mm-hmm. it's it's kind of like he's fallen out of the comic book and he can read it all um, oh so he, he's sort of he can see it all happening if he wants to flick forward three chapters he can see what's going on if yeah. he wants to flick back three chapters he can do it and he's um and it's made, and it makes you, at the same time, he's losing the sort of what makes him human. Mm. And uh, I don't know, it, it feels like maybe being on that, being on the conveyor belt, if you like, and, and moving through time is one of the things that make you, that keeps you human. That's really interesting, actually. I, and I agree. I think this, I think this whole chapter has some really interesting things to say about all of that kind of thing. Um, and, mm. um, yeah, like it's it's oh man, it's an it's a big, interesting bunch of issues, isn't it? And mm. um, uh, I love the idea of it being a comic book that he himself can read. Like I kind of now you've said that, I sort of wish that they'd riffed on that a little bit in the in the comic book, <laughs> sort of made it a little bit kind of broken the fourth wall a little bit and got philosophical that way. But <laughs> but they didn't, and that's legit. And I think to be honest, it's not as if it's lacking in philosophical depth anyway. So maybe that would have been a step too far. Yeah, right. So we've got um, uh, we're going to find out how Doctor Manhattan became Doctor Manhattan, um, mm. and uh, like you say, it's all told in this kind of strange present tense voice where he says, kind of, um, you know, he says it's October nineteen eighty five. I'm on Mars. It's July nineteen fifty nine. I'm in Jersey at the Palisades Amusement Park. I'm tired of looking at this photograph now. It's going to fall to the yeah. ground in two seconds, and and. Um, like he just seems kind of, I don't know. Sad would be the right word for it, wouldn't it? Yeah, I agree totally. I, I got a real sense of sadness all the way through this, and yeah, that that it's just that sense of him not, be, as we said about the timeline, and that he he no longer experiences things like we do. In as far as things have happened to him, things are happening to him, things are going to happen to him in the future. It's just there's just all these things exist. Mm. And he sees them all, and he sees them all at once. So, and it, it, it's just weird. I've, I loved how it captured that sense of complete disconnection mm-hmm. with with what you know, as I said before, what makes us human. Mm-hmm. And yeah, and and there is that sense of he he feels some kind of loss at that, and he he's aware that he's lost some kind of humanity. Mm. Um, but he can't really understand. He, it's not like he he's lost something. and He's trying to get it back. He just completely he just doesn't really understand. 
what it is to be human anymore. Yeah, and and that's an interesting reflection, isn't it, on a character who's basically supposed to be God. You know, mm. that, like, you know, he has this kind of almost, you would think it was an all-knowing perspective, but actually he cannot know what it is to be human anymore, even though he started off that way. Mm. Um, yeah, so we, well, I mean, we see John Osterman, as he was before he became Big Blue Swee and Dick, um, <laughs> yeah, okay, so we're talking about a metaphor for deity and God, but I'm still going to use the phrase big blue swinging dick, because yeah. uh, that's the shark liver oil way, ladies and gents. <laughs> yeah. um, and we kind of see where he was, and he seems to have been this quite interesting character who's quite kind of passive. Like, we see him mm. as a teenager um, before he goes off to school and he wants to be a watchmaker and his dad comes and throws all of his watchmaking stuff out the window because, you know, the mm. atomic bomb has changed everything in the world. And and then cut to he's graduating with a PhD in atomic physics um, mm. and getting a new job at this kind of nuclear test sort of place. Um, and he actually says at one point, um, it seems like uh, most people, uh, uh, other people seem to make all my moves for me and um and there's a really interesting little nub in here like given how important dr manhattan is in the story of this world like can you imagine if the comedian had been the character who ended up experiencing what john osterman experiences and becoming like a superhuman Mm, that's a good that's an interesting point yeah would it change Sort of, I suppose that the question there is how important is the person he was to the to what he becomes after he rebuilds himself. That's a, yeah, it's yeah. a g- g- great question. Yeah. Well, because there, there seems to me to be something quite important in this that like he goes through this process, you know, which will which will come to. But um, the, kind of the the upshot we get at the end of this chapter quite a lot of stuff about how he's influenced global politics and things like that. And mm. it's always seemed to me to be a little bit of a a little bit of a plot hole, really, the way Dr. Manhattan kind of just goes along with what the US government asks him to do. Because mm. since he's so enormously powerful, you know, y- you kind of feel a bit like, well, so why do you want to cash a government paycheck? Do you know mm. what I mean? Like, uh, you know, it, it's, it's, it does seem to me that he's both almost omnisciently powerful, om- sorry, omnipotent, uh, he's almost. It seems to me that he's almost omnipotent and just incredibly malleable, and that's really weird. The idea of a god that you can boss around. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, and you're right. Maybe it is a holdover from his character before the change mm-hmm. that he was open to that, and the fact that he wants to still serve America is this uh, holdover of his affinity for that country because that's you know that's where he's come from and where he grew up. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's interesting. So kind of, so yeah, so there's, there's this thing here about um, uh, how it's actually his humanity that makes him kind of weak if he'd become a super being completely right away. Maybe hmm. things would have played out differently. But anyway, back to, the, back to 1958 at the nuclear test base, hmm. uh, where all the romances start, obviously. Um, oh yeah! <laughs> oh yeah! Yeah! You see what you got? You've got test tubes. You've got computers. You've got rows of figures, and you've got romance. <laughs> and that's what we've got here. We've got. He walks into the bar um, and uh, meets a woman named uh, Janie Slater, and uh, mm-hmm. they very quickly get into a little sonsin sonsin. Um, yeah. Uh, and and all is set for a lovely romance story, but. Um, 
Yeah, I, I think actually just in this bit, the the sex scene in it is actually done quite well, mm. uh, especially compared to some of the others later on. I actually <laughs> thought that was ha- I thought that was handled really, really, um, really nicely and quite with a bit of sophistication. Um, just, just it's not it's it's not overstated, but mm. it's not sort of moved past in sort of oh god, we've got to get this done kind of thing. It just it fit and it made sense and it felt quite. It felt like it was done very well. All oh, right, that's interesting, and I think I would I tend to agree with that actually. Like, I, it's quite nicely put. Like, you know, you've got kind of like her mother still isn't answering. We decide to call again from my hotel. We both know what's going to happen instead of it being mm. like kind of, and then we shagged, which is what you get. Like, there's a scene later on which is much more kind of unplugged in that sense. Um, yeah, a little bit. So, so so he manages though he ceased to be a human he's still a gentleman and <laughs> and that's nice um so um i think i think it, it also that quote builds on his sense of detachment doesn't it now as well yeah he's he's he he talks about this relationship in the same way he talks about the watchmaking or anything else it's just things that um, happen. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And yeah. there are some interesting moments in this chapter where we kind of see his emotions come through, but they're all sort of dulled by his experience of time. You know, mm. like a little bit later on, there's this really interesting bit where he, um, he, he, as we know, he eventually gets it on with Laurie with the Silk Spectre too. Um, he kind of flashes back to her leaving him, which we've already seen in the comic book, and um, mm. and he's, his his only comment is on a rooftop in the past. I pull her to me, breathing her perfume, never wanting to lose her, knowing that I shall. Mm. And you see, all the way through this chapter, you've got these little moments where you just see his, his heart kind of dying almost. You know, he's mm. kind of tired of having emotions. Um, anyway, I was, so we, I mean, we're skipping way ahead there because what we've got first is, um, is what I, I think might be the least original plot device in the history of the creation of superheroes, right? He's, he's the one actual superhero in this entire book. And how does he get it? Nuclear test accident. Obviously. <laughs> is, is there a problem? I had a bit of a problem with this, but maybe, maybe there is some scientific reason, but... Um, why is it... <laughs> Why don't they just switch it off? <laughs> well, well, okay. So is, there, is there not like a breaker, like a main switch? Well, well, no. Is there enough? I'm stuck inside here. Is there enough switch? No. <laughs> well, that, that seems like quite a significant oversight on your part, since we're dealing with experimental science here, and um, you know this is a room big enough for a person to get trapped in, and you're telling me there's not an off switch. Yeah. So, so if it went wrong, what were we going to do? Just sort of new Arizona? Yeah, I suppose. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't know if if once a countdown begins or that kind of thing, it's it's more dangerous to interrupt it than not. But um, yeah, it just. I mean, it, you got to get him turning into a superhero yeah, somehow. No, but true, it, yeah. it it just it did it was a bit of an off note for me where I thought, really, you can't stop it. <laughs> there's literally there's no. I mean, I know it, I know it's the fifties, but there's no safety features at all. <laughs> No, strangely enough, uh, the the uh, the on switch was invented sometime in the mid thirties, but the off switch they didn't get to until sort of sixty two, sixty three. Yeah. That's not true. Um, but um, but yeah, so he gets he gets trapped in um, in a, a nuclear test chamber, and um, uh, and we get this, you know, really kind of extraordinary um, uh, 
occurrence where he, where he says, and I think this is a great line, you know, all the atoms in the test chamber are screaming at once. The light is yeah. taking me to pieces. And there's this incredibly yeah. powerful image. Like, and I thought this is a great example of how comic books really hit it out of the park better even than prose because the image yeah. just makes the words so much more powerful. Yeah, I agree. It's fantastic artwork there. Yeah, isn't it? it's absolutely amazing, and it's, um, it's actually mirrored in one of the later chapters as well, which I really liked. But, um, but yeah, it's cool. Mm. Um, and then, so so John's been kind of taken to pieces, and everybody thinks he's dead um, until uh, two guys, uh, you know, they're they're in the gents having a slash, talking about politics, and all of a sudden behind them appears a nervous system and a pair of eyeballs. <laughs> Total prankster. <Yeah. laughs> original prankster that's that's like you can almost imagine him being like yeah I could have put myself back together in a matter of seconds but frankly I thought I'd punk them all (laughs) so he becomes a nervous system and a pair of eyeballs and then a circulatory system then a screaming skeleton and then and then big blue swinging dick himself <laughs> yeah, that is epic, isn't it? Yeah, you can. I thought it was great the way you can almost hear the kind of high pitched choral music in the background, despite the fact that mm. it's a comic book and there's no music track. You can almost hear it going. Ah. I, th- I think. Yeah, I think that's partly to do with when he when he's full when he appears. Mm. It's sort of a it's a total Jesus pose as oh, well. Oh yeah, it? absolutely. You've seen it on religious yeah, artworks yeah. for centuries. Yeah. So and and it really. And it's kind of on the nose, isn't it? But it's saying, you know, like this is kind of a godlike yeah, character. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Um, and I think, actually, just reflecting on that godlike character thing, it's quite, a, again, it's quite a ballsy move to put a character like that into your story and make him part of how the story works. Because you yeah. would think that having a godlike character would just short-circuit all of the story tension. Got a problem? Yeah. Oh, I'll sort that out. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Um, but um, but no, it doesn't. And you're right; it is that kind of God moment. And then in the middle of it, there's there's Mrs. God, uh, Cheney Slater, mm-hmm. looking up and just kind of going, "John." <laughs> it's it's just a great freaked out expression on her face. Again, the artwork just absolutely captures the character thing. Yeah. Um, and uh, we get we get a nice little domestic scene next. Um, you know, <laughs> trying to have an ordinary Christmas after one of you has become a deity. We've all been there. Yeah. Um, and we start to see John kind of John who by the way is no longer Big Blue Swinging Dick he's dressed in clothes now he appears appears to have 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 stolen his wife's top if you look in the previous scene oh um, yeah (laughs) (laughs) maybe that was the first Christmas present he got before the ring that's amazing she's like John for fuck's sake cover yourself up (laughs) (laughs) but I don't have any clothes just Wear just wear this, all right? Are you sure it goes with the blue and the shining and the choir and the just fucking put it on, John? Put it on. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, this um, this uh, this domestic scene kind of ends. I'm um, really quite sadly, you know, because it ends up with she's quite scared, obviously, by this whole new situation, mm. and he kind of comforts her by saying, "I love you. I still want you. I'll always want you." And then the voiceover is, "As I lie." I hear her shouting at me in 1963 and sobbing at me in 1966. Mm-hmm. And and you just, you know, you start to, right early on, right after this experience, you know, his humanity is already kind of draining away. Mm. Um, and then we cut to the, the political aspect, because the army are pretty quick to get involved. Yeah. And, um, and I, I don't know about you, I thought the sequence really captured that kind of 
60s newsreel kind of feel of what of how it would have been reported on if you know the superman had appeared and turned out to be american you know and it's just yeah. him dismantling tanks and you know pulling guns apart to their constituent pieces and stuff yeah. and um yeah like i just I, this is just one of the places where i really felt like the period setting worked you know yeah yeah, I agree. I like how they um, we find out later as well that the the journalist has has softened that quote, just to, because they think people would be too upset if they say, because the original quote apparently, which this which this I think a scientist said about yeah. him was, God exists and he's American, yeah. and they changed it to the Superman exists yeah. and he's American because yeah. it's more palatable. And I just thought that it's quite a realistic sort of yeah. bit of public relations there isn't yeah it? yeah it's like like film you can imagine filming that interview and the guy just goes and god exists and he's american and they go whoa 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 let's just uh, <laughs> n- another cut for coverage shall we eh? would you mind saying superman <laughs> cheers thank, thanks mate <laughs> yeah it's homey it's wholesome everybody likes it yeah. there's no sense of you know you do that yeah just yeah. just do and go cue talking head um <laughs> And uh, so we get a few scenes of like his impact on um, uh, on the kind of superhero thing, and he very quickly becomes the kind of government's pet superhero, really, um, yeah. and goes around kind of fighting crime. He meets JFK, um, and he meets Hollis Mason the first night. Island this really, really kind of almost like sorrowful moment, really, where. Um, where you know Night Owl is retiring, and he talks to talks to Doctor Manhattan, and he's like, kind of like, see, I, you know, I'm going to become a, I'm going to become a, a mechanic because you know, even you aren't going to put the the car people out of business soon. And Manhattan just goes, of course, the electric cars should be even simpler. And it's just mm. like, do you think he's he's deliberately being a knobhead there and just sort of undermining this guy's retirement dream, or does he literally not realise? <laughs> That he's just totally contradicted this dude. I I think he just it's another example of this how he he doesn't really do connection anymore in the same way he used to, and that he just you know thinks it's useful to state a few facts, and that's all he really does. Mm. I think it's the, the interesting thing is that when you said about how um, he's he knows he's lying to his his girlfriend when he says he'll always he'll, he'll always love her and. He sees her sobbing as she's as she's leaving at the same time as as various other things are going on. I think it's that sense of you can't um, how you know if if you if you're reading a book and you skip to the end and you know what's going to happen, you you lose some of the experience. It's sort of that if that happening to you in your life, if you already knew exactly oh, yeah. what what's going to happen, the experience, the, the richness of the experience of doing it is lost, isn't it? And then how do you get that sense of relation and uncertainty and surprise and all those like, all those emotions that you just can't feel anymore because you know everything yeah yeah you're absolutely right and that's a huge part actually of being human isn't it is that you don't know what the future is going to hold but that you face mm. it you know with with the relationships that you value um and and he kind of you know he, the the uncertainty of the future is removed and therefore so is his desire for human connection in a sense he no longer needs mm. to be part of a village um, anyway, so um, next kind of flash forward, we have um, the little, the small matter of the fact that Kennedy gets shot still in this in this universe, and he's like, "Yeah, could have stopped that, didn't." 
<laughs> and and he's quite cold about it really he says you know it's just like it's already happening to me but he did already know that it was going to happen and this is the first hint of this uh problem of like does he does even this guy have free will um mm. and he would argue he argues quite strongly that he's not that he's just a puppet who can see the strings um but but given that he still makes some quite questionable choices i think we would have to call them and one of them is that the next scene we're in he's at the crime busters um and uh, and he gets it on with Laurie, who at the time mm. is 16. Mm. And um, we touched on this kind of briefly before, and I, I still think it's weird. Um, like, just this idea of... I don't know, like, how on earth does he think he can form a romantic experience here when he's struggling even to relate to the woman he's with? You know, what's, mm. he, what's he thinking? She's younger. She doesn't have as much baggage. I think it might be as much she'll be a- around for longer. Yeah. Because he he doesn't age, does he? Mm. So, um, and obviously, he's lacking a certain streak of empathy. <laughs> so from a, from a purely in this scene. Yeah. So from a purely practical point of view, you want to find someone as young as legally possible because they'll be around the longest if oh, you want to get a connection. That's fucking cold. <laughs> yes, that's Doctor Manhattan. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I, this was a slightly disappointing moment because I was kind of hoping that Doctor Manhattan would be a sympathetic character in some sense, or at least not a twat. And he's he's not as brutal as the comedian, and he's not as bleak as Rorschach, but he's definitely not cuddly, is he? No, I suppose not. I mean, he's just—I don't know. It's it's just, it's just, I just I just get a sense of. Uh, I just have a sense of pity for him, to be honest. Oh, interesting. More than anything yeah, else, yeah, yeah. because I, I think it's I think it's almost a fate worse than death that he's ended up with. Mm. I think that's probably true. Um, yeah. Well, yeah. So, um, so we have uh, we, we have this moment where I just I just want to touch on this uh, particularly ham-fisted attempt at being good at human relations again. Um, outside, mm. Janie accuses me of chasing the uh, jailbait. She bursts into angry tears, asking if it's because she's getting older. Now. Now. <laughs> Boyfriend Handbook 101 says, <laughs> If you're asked that question, there is only one correct answer, and the, the answer is, of course it's not, very beautiful. The answer is not, Dr. Osterman, is not, it's true. She's aging more noticeably every day while I'm standing still. <laughs> what a fucking knobhead. To be fair, to, to be fair he doesn't say that. That's true, he just, That's true. he just thinks it. But you wouldn't put it past him, would you? You wouldn't put it past him to in that moment <laughs> no, have been like kind of, yes, yeah. it's absolutely true, atomically speaking, you are degrading at an unbelievable rate. <laughs> what do you mean, fuck off? What? What? <laughs> Right, um, so. it's like that. Have you, have you did you ever see that Facebook exchange which went viral for a while? Where there was a there was a girl. I think she was in New York. She's about nineteen, and she, she's trying to find a rich husband, and she's moaning that she can't find one. And the, the only uh, people who the only rich people who sleep with her won't marry yeah. her. And uh, and this stockbroker responded. <laughs> And uh, said, "I've got to explain to you why." Um, and did it in terms of investment. And he was saying, "If you, if you, you know, when we enter a, a marriage, you invest in me. 
I'm I'm I've got a good job now and I'm going to get a better one and my value is only going to increase. Whereas you're as attractive as you ever going to be and your value is only your attractiveness and it's only going to decrease. How <laughs> <laughs> cold is that? <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, exactly. I think there are a number of interesting parallels between Doctor Manhattan, <laughs> right, who was created by the disproportionate and poorly controlled power of the 1950s, and stockbrokers, the holders of the disproportionate and poorly controlled power of the early 21st century. <laughs> <laughs> and that that yeah. ladies and gentlemen is why I like doing these podcasts with Matt because he's going to crack out something like that that I would never have thought of otherwise <laughs> <laughs> back with Dr. Manhattan um, he, he carries on being the government's kind of tame superhero but instead of fighting crime uh, he's, uh, he's sent over to fight the Vietnam War where he meets the uh, he meets the comedian which is a, uh, a <laughs> clearly a meeting for the ages um hmm. and is it is it so just very quickly is is there a political point being made here with the presidents in that he says that nixon personally asks him to intervene in vietnam whereas 10 years ago kennedy when he met him avoided all mention of cuba it yeah. seemed like kennedy just wanted to have him there as a threat but never actually use yeah. him. <laughs> i think that's that's undeniable and it's i don't think it's any surprise to discover that alan moore is more on more of a kennedy man than a nixon man <laughs> give, no. give the tone the, to, the tone of the whole graphic novel was yeah well, exactly like i don't think it's any secret that alan moore's more of a lefty than he is a righty um, but yeah, so uh, Nixon does mention Vietnam and Dr. Manhattan does go there and he meets the comedian. And uh, we get, you know, yet another reflection really on the comedian's kind of bleakness of character. Um, and the Manhattan says, as I come to understand Vietnam and what it implies about the human condition, I also realise that few humans want themselves such an understanding, but Blake's different. He understands perfectly and he doesn't care. And... Um, this is a, the, the whole kind of evocation of that war is really interesting to me because um, I, at the moment, I live and work in, well, in Cambodia next door to Vietnam. And it's really strange kind of seeing what remains it's left over here and then seeing this as a fictional kind of reflection on it. And, and the Vietnam War is kind of real to me now in a way that it wasn't before I came here. And I can just mm. imagine how uh, how somebody would be brought to that kind of existential bleakness that Blake and Manhattan both get out of the Vietnam War um, by kind of having mm. seen it. Um, and then we get we get the, the kind of Vietnam War end, which ends very, very quickly. And um, I don't know if you've noticed this, but throughout this sequence, Dr. Manhattan has been getting fewer and fewer clothes. Um, yeah, <laughs> uh, at one true. point, actually, he mentions that, um, I tell the government that I'm not going to be wearing all of their costume anymore. As, as though he's like he, you know he's become godlike and has become detached from his human roots but he still knows that he likes to get his wang out like he's just looking for a way to make it professionally acceptable to walk around naked again it, it does get quite almost to the point of, of ridiculousness this doesn't it because even when it gets to the, you know he's, he's obviously he's wandering through Vietnam causing explosions and he's in he's now just got a bit of mm. underwear on and even the underwear goes from what appears to be briefs to when it gets to the stage where he's handling the riots, he's got a thong on because he's oh, in yeah. from behind it. It's just a thong. <laughs> why, why did they do that? It's, it's really I, odd. I've no idea. And I totally hadn't even noticed this until you mentioned it last time out. But you're absolutely <laughs> right. This is weird. 
Um, <laughs> but we move on. Um, and we move on to uh, he and Laurie meet Adrian Veidt, who apparently is... Uh, used to be a costume superhero called Ozymandias and has, has since retired and has a pretty pimp crib in uh, in Antarctica. That's how he himself describes it, by the way. And um, mm. then there's uh, there are riots and uh, and he very quickly teleports everybody who's rioting to some other place, killing two of them. But his only <laughs> reflection is more would have suffered in a riot, I'm certain. Yeah. Um, and um, and then more of a skip through this kind of history, you know, we get the banning of the the superheroes. We get the fact that Rorschach refuses to quit by leaving a note reading simply "Never" on the dead body of a multiple rapist. Yeah. Love it. Yeah, he's not one for the uh, for the half-hearted gesture, is he, Rorschach? Equivocal, <laughs> yeah. not a word that Rorschach's familiar with. And um, <laughs> and then Osterman uh, on Mars kind of starts to make. Well, he says, I'm going to create something. Um, mm. And what he starts to create is um, essentially indescribable. It, it looks like it could be a clock. It's got spiky bits on it. Um, but more than that, I wouldn't... I, I really have no idea. What did you make of this thing that he's making? You know, it's not, it's, it's not yeah, a kind of suburban, <laughs> suburban semi, is it? No, it felt to me like a, yeah, a clock-based design of a sort of a, a, just an enormous glass palace. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's yeah. very true, isn't it? I, you got you got the turrets, haven't you, and the uh, the, the massive bus. spiky bits. And you got that little balcony, the cupolas. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's not clear to me where he's going to sleep. I'll, I'll say that, but um, but he's you know he he's omniscient, so presumably he knows what he's doing. Presumably, he doesn't sleep. <laughs> yeah, presumably that's true, actually. But um, but I mean, all of this is kind of underpinned by a serious philosophical kind of underpinning, where he he decides that you know the universe is full of all this beautiful complexity, but it, that it's essentially meaningless. And we arrive at this kind of everything is meaningless statement, um, which we're gonna get from other characters, which we maybe you wouldn't expect to get from a character who's basically God. But there it is. Even in this universe, God Himself says there's no God. You know, mm. in that sense. Um, what did yeah. you make of the sort of philosophical full stop of this this chapter? Because we're at the end of it now. Well, you can always, um, whenever you mention anything about the universe, it sounds heavy, doesn't it? It's, it's the easiest thing to make it sound heavy. And yeah. I've just I've been watching Mad Men recently, and there's a there's a bit where every, there's all these uh, all these guys sitting around getting stoned, and uh, and the, the main character is this like is an advertising executive in this suit, and he's with them, and they're having this argument, and he just turns around uh, the advertising guy, and he just says, "The universe is indifferent," and this this other bloke just goes. Man, why do you have to go and say something like that? I'll <laughs> get proper bummed out. And it's just such a shortcut to like heavy shit, isn't it? Because yeah. that's about the universe. Yeah. <laughs> that's amazing. The universe is indifferent. Drops mic, <laughs> leaves room. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, but yeah, no, I, I think it, it it makes perfect sense in this context, doesn't it? That he's talking yeah. about that. And. Yeah. Um, and it, yeah, it, it's a nice way of just rounding off who he is. I felt I went into this chapter with a rough idea of this odd bloke who's blue and has superpowers, and I came out feeling like I really know what this character's about now. 
Yeah, I think you're, you're absolutely right. And it's, it's really skillfully done, isn't it? Mm. Um, to say that you're dealing with such a weird scenario and such a strange character idea, you really feel for him. And I think mm. that's a real achievement. Mm. Um, yeah, and, and so and that's the end of the chapter. Uh, we just got a small, a little bit uh, academic paper um, kind of talking about... Um, it's interesting. It kind of talks about how the Soviet Union, even though they don't have this super weapon, will still start a war. And um, it worked for me, I have to say. Like, it explained a bit more of the plot to me. But mm. on a second read-through, it sort of felt a little bit like being told not to think about elephants. You know what I mean? Like, um, in case you were wondering, this plot isn't total bollocks, and it works for the following reasons, mm. you know? Yeah. Um, did, did you find this, was this convincing to you, or did it feel a bit like papering over the cracks? Uh, yeah, no, I, I I thought it was thought it was okay. It makes uh, sense in terms of some of the some of the politics it explains. Uh, I thought was was fairly believable. To be honest, without wanting to get too modern politics, I got a little bit of a chill to, uh, reading about Russian ambition and uh, <laughs> and yeah. deterrent and things like that. But uh, yeah, yeah, I thought it was I thought it was quite a nice way. Just uh, it, you're right. It does it does cover a little bit of what the the chapter didn't manage to do when it was talking about him filling some of that blank about how he fits into sort of geopolitics more than just the odd turning up as a super weapon every now and then and yeah i, yeah, I thought I, I was quite happy with it i thought it worked fairly well mm-hmm. cool cool all right well okay so move, moving us on to chapter five then so the chapter's called fearful symmetry and um uh I don't know if you noticed this. I went looking for like little factoids about it and discovered that this is is actually perfectly symmetrical. This like the artwork in this particular chapter is laid out with with perfect symmetry. Like uh, the the middle image at the center of the thing is a kind of spread where the middle image kind of is 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 a mirror image of itself sort of thing and then it it kind of plays out all the way to the fr- the first and last pages and laid out the same way as well. Um in mm. terms of colour. Did you notice that? I I didn't notice it specifically as shot by shot, but I did notice that generally mm. it's symmetrical in that it starts with uh Rorschach going to this, this guy's house and then we move on to a bit of the comic book, you know, the guy, the kid reading the comic book and then there's the Veet stuff, and then there's a kid reading the comic book, and then there's Rorschach going to this guy's house. Mm. So it's symmetrical in that sense. Mm. But I didn't, I didn't look sort of shot by. Sh- I suppose the first and last shot are the same as well, aren't they? They are, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I just thought that was just a really nice. I mean, it's easy to kind of, kind of geek out about and be like, "Did you happen to notice that it's, uh, it's very clever?" And I'm also very clever because I noticed it. But I just, I kind of love that cool somebody idea. puts that yeah. amount of thought into it. Yeah, exactly. Mm. Like not so much for the sake of being a smart ass, but just for the sake of doing something cool that they've put that amount of thought into it um mm. so i yeah i really dig that i think that's fantastic um anyway so we open we open with another one of rorschach's little midnight calls to moloch um mm. where where rorschach is essentially picking on a pensioner here and it's <laughs> kind of like batman versus the joker and the joker's retired but batman just won't let it go and keeps going over there and being like you bastard you killed these people you you're my philosophical opposite you know um uh, can you think of any reason why Rorschach should still treat Moloch like a supervillain at this point? 
Is he? He's, he's looking for information, isn't he? And he still believes he might be somehow involved in this, uh, in this serial killing of superheroes. Yeah, but like, I don't know. I just—he's an old guy who can't even prevent himself from being shoved into his own fridge. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> At which point, I find it very difficult to be like, "Oh yeah, he's the mastermind of a, a massive conspiracy to kill off, you know, a few of the most powerful people there's ever been." Do you know what I mean? I just, I find it odd. Anyway, Rorschach does not find it odd. Rorschach is into the idea. Um, mm. So he goes, but he doesn't get anything out of him. Uh, we're back with um, next with the two detectives that we met in the very first episode who are investigating the, the um, apparent suicide of the comedian. And mm. um, uh, they're investigating something really awful where it appears that some guy who we've never met before in the book... Um, uh, was kind of is so stressed and so afraid of this international situation that he ends up killing his kids and then himself um, because they're all you know he says you know they're all going to die anyway um, and we cut away from that incredibly quickly but I thought it was this really interesting like piece of world building where clearly things are going crazy not just in the particular plot of our particular characters but just all the way around them you know there's this mm-hmm. sense yeah. of approaching approaching doom. Um, in the whole world, really. Mm. Um, and uh, and and we get that next because we cut to some more of the the gothic Jack Sparrow vibe of um, of the bra- the Black Freighter in this story, where yeah. <laughs> where something terrible is bearing down upon a town, and one man is chasing after it to try and stop it. Are you getting the parallels here? It's not too it's not too subtle. <laughs> <laughs> um but um uh we we have uh, we have that moment um kind of lightly uh we have um uh this guy who we don't have a name for so I'm going to call him John Sparrow that's what I'm going to call him um and uh and he's he he makes a raft out of human bodies um to get back to where he thinks he needs to be back to this town which is kind of threatened and um, and I, I don't know what you make of all of this right um, but I'm a bit I sort of feel like there's now been quite a lot of the Black Freyer and there's more to come and it doesn't seem to me to be adding anything to the story apart from this kind of aura of doom which you already have yeah. because there's nuclear weapons in play and the Dr. Manhattan has just left Earth and the Soviets have invaded Afghanistan and so on and so on like it's all a little bit like yeah obviously and what um hmm. i don't know did you do you feel like it's adding to your experience of the story at this point um yeah i mean i i remember the, the first time i read it i was kind of skimming it thinking i want to get back to the good stuff hmm. um but yeah on second reading it's uh, I, I kind of enjoy it slowly Adding to this, adding another layer to this tension of the uh, of the world, and there's an extra parallel. And I like how the it does feel like another comic book stitched into this book. Mm. Um, I like the the feel of the the artwork, and uh, it looks very different, mm. and and feels like you kind of you're stepping out of this one world into another. And it's another sort of world within a world, isn't mm-hmm. it? Uh, yeah, I, I, I quite I, I enjoyed it, but yeah, I don't think it's I don't think I would have 
felt something was missing if it wasn't there. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I, I I agree with that broadly. Like, I think hopefully it will pay off towards the end of the book at some point. But you know, hopefully this isn't just a pointless kind of hammering home of the environment. But right now, that's kind of what it feels like to me. But um, mm-hmm. but I, I will see. Um, the next uh, the next scene is Dan and Laurie um, having lunch together. Laurie's obviously lost her home and her money now that now that um, Doctor Manhattan has left the planet. She's just kind of been kicked to the curb by the U.S. government, mm. and um, and she um, she eats and then she leaves, uh, and she says she leaves saying she'll have to find a cheap room somewhere. Do you think she's dropping a hint at this point? <laughs> you know, is she going like, "Let's go have a lunch where we talk about the fact that I'm homeless," and then anyway, uh, guess <laughs> I'd better go and find a hotel. What do you think? Is she that manipulative or not? Yeah. Uh, she might be just dropping it out. She, she's making it clear that she's she's looking for somewhere to stay, yeah, isn't she? Yeah, that's that's. Um, so, yeah, I think probably she is suggesting that maybe you know if anyone's got a room going spare, wouldn't mind stopping there for a bit. Um, <laughs> anyone? Well, I, anyone I, around here got a spare <laughs> room? Anybody? <laughs> I also like that little um, just in between these two, then the pirate scenes to the. Uh, the restaurant, mm. the little crash cut between oh, yeah. the, the the mariner eating the seagull and then Dryberg eating that chicken. <laughs> that was quite good. Yeah, and it's full of stuff like that, isn't it? Like it's and the first time yeah. I read it, I was I was I don't know what I was when I read this, like nineteen or something. Um so the first time I read it, I was like, this is unutterably dense. This is amazing. I can't believe that he's scripted it all with all of this stuff in it. And um now that I've spend a bit more time writing things of my own I now realise what he's done is write the plot out and then go back through and look for ways to kind of polish it up um, so it's not yeah. quite as impressive as I first thought it was but it's still pretty flipping mint like just just <laughs> those little moments you know that I don't think they're necessarily supposed to mean very much so much as they're supposed to kind of reflect the you know the whole thing yeah it's tight yeah you. exactly yeah 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 anyway Dan uh, Dan pulls a um, pulls a classic wait as she's leaving the, <laughs> as Laurie's leaving the restaurant, um, and then cracks out. What well, I, I actually think this might be the one of the one of the all time great uh, chat up lines. So what he says is, um, you know, there's there's always my place. Pause. There's it's no imposition. I have a lot of room there. Uh, I mean, I mean, we're both we're both friends. We're both leftovers. And it's just like mm. it's whatever whatever the scale is, you know, with kind of Romeo and Juliet at the one end of it, this is at the other end. You know. Hey mm. baby, come back to my place. We're both largely forgotten by the world around us. <laughs> <laughs> but she says yes anyway. Um and uh and then um then we're on to uh Rorschach. And this is kind of seemed a bit almost meaningless to me, but I think there are a couple of things that are important definitely become important in the next chapter where Rorschach kind of speaks very harshly of his landlady um, and says there were there were purple bite marks on her fat white neck fresh ones she mm. reminds me of my mother and it seems to be important to him that this kind of sense of promiscuity and being associated with his mother makes him very very unhappy um, mm. and uh, and then it's yeah yeah, so it's just this kind of just a little bit more insight into the way that he thinks. 
anyway, um, uh, the other thing is that he describes his the mask, like the Rorschach test mask thing that he wears, as his skin or his face. Yeah. And, you know, as if we were in any doubt, we, you know, this really brings us smack back to the fact that Rorschach is a fucked up individual. Do you know what I mean? Hmm. Um, he's, he's, you know, to describe, a, I don't know, I feel like the idea of taking your skin off is a troubling image. But it's one that's... Hmm. It feels very Silence of the Lambs. That's exactly what I was going to say. It's like Silence of the Lambs. And I don't know, I, like, I couldn't have read a comic book with Buffalo Bill as the protagonist. But for some reason, I'm okay reading a comic book with Rorschach as the protagonist. Now, of course, that's because Rorschach, it seems, only, only commits violence upon people who deserve it. But just in the, in the, wor- in the, in the most kind of bleak and unpleasant kind of way imaginable. Um, hmm. Anyway, uh, then we have um, then we have a scene with with Adrian Vite, where um, this mass killer theory turns out to have a little bit of um, a little bit of kind of credence. It's not just Rorschach's crazy idea, because he, he a guy jumps him in the foyer of his own building um, with a gun, and um, we haven't really seen much of Vite to this point, but he cracks out what it's fair to describe as some serious game, because he's. <laughs> he gets shot, right? Or he gets shot at. But he manages to deflect the bullet using <laughs> a vase. Right? Like, so other superheroes, they have planes, or they have batcopters, or they have whatever they have, batarangs. Adrian Vite has interior decorating, and you'd better be, better be <laughs> fucking frightened of it. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> Yeah, uh, I mean, I, th- I think the the vase thing. It's I think it's probably more a spectacular moment of luck than than any kind of skill on his. Yeah. But I think it's more he's he's basically swinging that at the guy's head, isn't he? Yeah. And it it just so happens to <laughs> connect with a bullet on the way, which is which is great. A, a little character search I like of yeah. like is um, the very first uh, the very first panel mm. as well. Where he's uh, is attaching his Adrian Vite cufflinks. <laughs> <laughs> I love how he wears his own That's cufflinks. Amazing. I love that he's still, therefore, the smartest man in the world. <laughs> yeah. I love that. <laughs> um, so anyway, this would-be assassin. Um, you know, you'd want to question this guy, but he ends up swallowing a, a poison capsule, and. Um, mm. Uh, and and dying right there, and then Vite has this moment of absolute brilliance, like a proper weary superhero line, where he sits down and says, "Call the toy people and cancel the extension of the Ozymandias line." If they ask why, just tell them I don't have any enemies anymore. <laughs> it's just like you. It sounds properly yeah. dramatic, but. Of course you've got enemies, you fucking moron. Somebody just tried to kill you. Like, yeah. what did you make of that line? Do you think he's just being, he's so self-absorbed that he just wants to have a Hollywood line at the end of it? I thought he was saying, I thought that meant basically, I because as they were saying, before his PA, I suppose we should mention for the, the poor girl who just is all optimistic for about a page and then ends up dead. And then immediately gets shot. killed, yeah. Yeah, but... Um, I think she, the the meeting was to talk about you know some new enemy figures. I think the point is the 
the landscape has changed so much that it's not sort of good guys fighting these colourful bad guys now. He doesn't have any enemies that they can, in, in terms of that, he can turn into figurines because they're just oh, yeah. they're just these shady masked. I'm uh, oh, sorry, these these uh, shady individuals. He doesn't even know who they are. He can't even work out who they are. So I thought it was more about that. I felt there was a similar thing here to what the um, what Hollis says in his autobiography, where he says um, that it stopped being fun after a while because the the sort of the 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 villains stopped being sort of fun villains you know people who like to dress up and have their own personalities and they just ended up being these faceless crime lords now yeah yeah that's very interesting actually I think that's a much better read on it than mine because <laughs> I don't want to write off the smartest guy in the world as a fucking kind of grandstanding idiot but um, <laughs> although that would be funny yeah that would be funny but I'm glad I've got an alternative to be honest um uh, next up, we've got we've got more of Rorschach out on the streets. Um, puts on his costume, goes and goes and beats up a mofo, mm. and then uh, and then we've got Dan and Laurie at Dan's place. And I don't know about you, this reminded me of in the Game of Thrones bit when way back whenever it was when um, uh, there's. Uh, do you remember um, Jorah and Daenerys and Jorah's got this epic crush on Daenerys and you were talking oh, yeah. about that kind of internet meme of like just kind of Jorah being being just absolutely stuck in the friend zone and it's exactly that but with, with Dan and Laurie here like he kind of like you know shows her to a room very gentlemanly and everything just kind of kind of walks out goes to his bed lies very conspicuously on only one side of it and just goes hell and damnation and <laughs> And I quite like that because Dan Dryberg's a nice guy and I haven't had much of a character who's just a nice guy in this book mm. so far. Um, he did, but this was a bit more depth of his character and so on, you know. Yeah, yeah. I think, to be honest, <clears throat> Dryberg annoys me a little bit. Does he? I think he's a bit, yeah. Um, and he's, he's the, for me, he's the least interesting of the characters maybe because he isn't as damaged as the rest of them yeah um but his inability to to sort of uh, just do things himself uh i don't know just i'll make crucial decisions at the sort of do or die moment kind of mm-hmm. i don't know maybe he'll get better later on but at the moment he just strikes me as a vaguely kind of sad guy just, uh, I, just a I bit feel wet a, i feel a, I feel a little awkward when I, when he whenever he's around, um, for, like for him, yeah. I feel awkward for him. So, um, I mean, it's it's kind of the polar opposite of in that sense of uh, of Rorschach, mm. who um, who is obviously, if nothing else, decisive. <laughs> <laughs> I quite liked actually his very quick scene uh, Rorschach before with with the uh, I just I liked how dark it was. Mm. And it's it's it was a really nice example of the dark side of vigilantism. Yeah, yeah. He's he's saving someone who's about to get raped, which is great. Um, but what it's doing to the way he does it, and what it's doing to his own sort of personal psychology, mm. is is quite chilling as well. So I thought it was interesting. Yeah, that, I mean, it's that, the kind of it's the kind of thing that you it's the kind of thing that you, um, in theory, you imagine is great. You know, yeah, you know, the visceral. Um, I don't know. Reaction to the to the idea of of a, of a rapist is, you know, hurt him and yeah. and and, yeah. and do yeah. something to, like that. Vengeful but, pain, right? Yeah, but then when you pick that apart, it's quite a, a dark thought to have, isn't it? Yeah. 
So yeah, yeah, and and I think there's something very important about this this book, and we'll come to this more in the next chapter. Is that it really presents you with the darkness of those kind of human moral judgments, you know, mm. like the kind of the desire to to say, you know, I am better than, so I get to decide that this is what you should do, or this is what you should do, or you know, or that you deserve to die, mm. or you deserve to live. And in many ways, the whole point of Rorschach is to present people with the kind of pointlessness of that judgment, even as he makes those judgments for himself. Mm. Um, and you're right, the line he has in that in that panel is is just chilling. You know, mm. cleared throat. The man turned, and there was something rewarding in his eyes. Sometimes the night is generous to me. Fucking yeah. hell! Yeah, that's up there with like the creatures of the night. What sweet music they make! <laughs> it's a really creepy line. <laughs> I, do you know what? Again, another parallel. I don't think anybody's drawn in the history of literature there, but that's where we are. Um, um, so, and then, and then. The police get a pretty spectacular tip. These two, um, these two mm. detectives. Oh, oh! Just, just before we move on to put the um, the police, just the one quick thing with the with the Dryberg and Laurie bit. Yeah. Do you know I think it's useful because we we're talking about is Laurie sort of giving him the come on a little bit, mm. or is it just in his, is it just one way? And here, the fact that as she she sort of sits down and immediately starts getting undressed while he's still in the room, yeah, suggests that. You know, it's not like it, she she's not in a position where she's feeling a little bit uncomfortable with imposing on this guy, and yeah. she doesn't want to give him the wrong impression. She's obviously, at the very least, extremely comfortable in his presence. Yeah, that's an interesting thing, and of course, they have been friends for many years. So mm. you know, it could be that this has always been a thing that Dryberg has felt, but that she, you know, that she would just never assume that that's where that mm. that's where he is. You know. Um, uh, so uh, it, it is an interesting little thing the relationship between these two and I'm quite mm. I'm quite keen on kind of seeing how it plays out in the future I think mm-hmm. um, uh, but yeah and then we have then we have a, the police get a tip um, and they get a tip of where they can arrest Rorschach and um, this seems to be in um, in response to a, a note that Rorschach got earlier on in the chapter um mm from Moloch saying come and meet me at my place and um, so it would seem that you know Rorschach was right and I was wrong to write off Moloch because what it looks like here is that he's properly sold Rorschach out um, you know he's got Rorschach to come back to his place and um, and then he sold him out to the police but when Rorschach gets to Moloch's apartment um, he's dead he's sitting in a chair with a bullet in his forehead and then the police come in. Um, and I think we actually we, we get a um, when the police get the tip off, we get a little pronunciation guide for for Rorschach. It, well, actually, they say Rorschach. 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 I suppose. Yeah. So, are, are we going to do a, an American accent thing here? Because I Rorschach. 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 Yeah. Okay, I can see that. I'm still calling him Rorschach though. I think I think I'm going to do that as well. Yeah. <laughs> <Carry> <laughs> you just wanted me to do my my menagerie of terrible American accents there, didn't you? You just wanted me to. Play it was with fun. That. It was, yeah. <laughs> so I'm glad it was entertaining for you. Um, anyway, yeah, and so the police move in, and there's this massive firefight, and Rorschach does not go down without a fight, but he goes down. Yeah. He goes down yeah. for sure, and um, and they rip his mask off. And he turns out to be this little ginger fella. 
Um, yeah. And uh, and you know they're all like this. This ugly little zero is the terror of the underworld. Um, they mm. say, and he's going to get locked up. But I, I'm going to hazard a guess that he's put away some people over the years, and that means that his time in prison is not going to be enjoyable. I'm just, I'm going to put that out there. I'm going to hazard that guess. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> when you were reading this, as he's getting, so as he's fighting for his to try and escape. Mm. Were you hoping he'd get away, or were you hoping he'd get caught? Ooh, there's a question. Um, I think... I would have liked him to get away here, because I'm still invested in the who's killing people, you know, what what is this kind of threat that's descending upon everybody? And Rorschach is a character who investigates and who uncovers things, and so I'm like, he's kind of Mr. Plot. So I feel like him being locked up is not going to forward the plot at all. Um, so I'm kind of a bit, I'm a bit bummed by that. But um, yeah, I mean, then again, him being in prison with all these people he's locked up, that's got to be an interesting kind of um, interesting prospect as well. What about you? What did you want? Uh, yeah, I was, I was definitely still on sort of Team Rorschach here. I was hoping he'd escape. Um, I actually quite like him as a character. Yeah. Um, I think he's really, I think he's a really interesting character and. Yeah, like you say, this investigation was was quite. It felt like it was going somewhere. So it was a it was a real shock when he suddenly gets arrested. Mm, yeah, 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 absolutely. But but arrested he is, and that's the end of the chapter. And um, we've got an, we've got a we've got an excerpt here that sheds a bit more light on those pirate comics that we've been kind of following through, um, and mm. kind of talking about the bleakness of the worldview and stuff. And um, and I'm still struggling to see how this fits. Because I don't, again, I just, I tend to think of these pirate comics as being being a bit kind of like mood, like window dressing really for the mood. Um, so why I need even more background into that, I don't really sort of get. Although it does mention that this, um, this, this particular storyline, pirate storyline that we've been reading, seems to be a... Um, seems to be considered like the masterpiece of this particular comics writer who, who has gone missing, by the way. Wonder mm. if that's going to come up again. Mm. Mm. Um, exactly. Yeah, I, I agree. I thought it was uh, a little self-indulgent, but it, it doesn't doesn't hurt. It's an interesting little bit of extra color, yeah. but again, not not exactly essential. No, I agree plot. with that very much. And then it's the clock, and the blood is dripping further down, and it's seven minutes to midnight. Mm. Got a song there, or? Uh, Seven seconds away. Yeah, seven seconds. Yeah. That was that was pretty good. Me putting you on the spot there. Well done, Matt. Well done. <laughs> <laughs> I'll be waiting. Do you remember that no, song? No, I, I never remember any of these songs. I just assume that you make them all seven up. Seconds, seven seconds away. Is that one? That, who sings it? Oh, when the child is born. Oh, okay, now. There is no concert. While, while I think we could and listen that, to that, you then, sing then, then that, all day, I think we may need to move on. And then there's, then there's that little bloke in the background who goes, million voices. <laughs> Where do you get these songs from? I'm, Honestly, I'm totally link. I'm, I'm getting a link to that and sticking it in the, on the Twitter after once this goes out. Fantastic. I think it was might be Nana Cherry. Nana Cherry. Yeah. Is right. Well, okay. From Nana Cherry <laughs> to um, a picture of a butterfly, or that's what I see. Maybe you see something different, eh? Because it's a Rorschach test mm. at the start of chapter six, and yeah. Rorschach is in prison. Um, 
and uh, doing a bit of bird. He's been he's being interviewed by a, he's being interviewed by a psychiatrist called Malcolm Long, and he's lying about his answers, right? Because we see what he sees in one of the patterns. He sees a dog with its head broken in half, mm. and then he tells Long that he sees a pretty butterfly, and he, and he says this: if you want a one-panel illustration of the phrase "cold dead eyes of a killer." It's, it's the panel in which he says that. But this psychiatrist believes him. <laughs> he says, I really think he might be getting better. It's like, have you been yeah. paying any attention at all? That did feel a bit a bit odd, didn't yeah. it? Yeah. It really did. It is it's really weird. Like, So he's like, this guy's either really stupid or really arrogant. Because sitting in front mm. of him is a man who's been on the run for decades as a professional sociopath. But this doctor, he's like, what? I'm a genius. I fixed him. What of it? It's yeah. done. Um, uh, but he does say that he's still quite troubled by Rorschach's kind of unblinking stare. Hmm. Um, so, and then, and then it's flashback o'clock. Oh, yes. And um, as you can imagine, for a character like Rorschach, we're going to go back into his, his backstory, and it's not going to be much fun for him. Because uh, mm. the first scene we have is him as a small child walking in on his mother having sex uh, with a man, and it turns out that she's a prostitute. Um, and it's I, I actually found this scene incredibly heartbreaking because because he's just this little kid who seems really innocent and he's really really worried about his mum, and then mm. she just kicks the shit out of him for chasing this guy away because he kind of opens the door and they're there having sex and this punter just sort of you know lobs cursory amount of cash at Rorschach's mum and then then runs away um mm. uh and um but this is in response to a to a Rorschach blot test again uh, but Rorschach doesn't say any of that story what he says is that he sees some nice flowers mm. and Long very very happily believes him right um f- f- what did you make of this psychiatrist character by the way uh it's interesting how he he changed. I think it's funny. The first time I read it, I really liked it because I like I loved how he's just this sort of fairly comfortably off mm. normal guy in a in a world which seems predominantly populated with people who are going crazy. Mm. And um, by the end of it, he's another one of the people who seems to be on this downward trajectory just through what seems to be three or four days of talking to this guy. Yeah. And and it and uh, f- the first time I read it, I thought that was great, and I thought, oh yeah, e- you know, everyone can be aff- affected, even if you haven't experienced stuff like that. Um, but the second time, I thought, mm, I- I'm not, not, I'm not sure I really believe that someone could be that he- um, heavily affected by someone they're talking to just over a, a short period of time, yeah. especially especially considering everything that's going going on around. This uh, the psychiatrist and the rest of his life, mm. and the things he must see in the street every day, mm-hmm. and the fact that he's just this this uh, four or five day conversation with uh, with with Rorschach can can erode his sunny disposition. Didn't quite feel, I don't know, didn't ring true enough for me. Yeah, yeah, I I I, I tend to agree with that, but I do think it sets up clearly something that that Alan Moore finds very very interesting and explores in quite an interesting way. You know, this idea of you know, is is the only answer to kind of Rorschach's bleakness, a sort of um, blind complacency and kind of you know comfortable mm. um, 
yeah, like a kind of the, the you know being drugged by comfort. Is there any more positive thing to say or be than somebody who has a nice house and a nice car? Um, mm. And I think many people would hope that there is kind of more than that to be said on the side of humanity being all right. But I, I think it's a very mm. rare work of art that kind of asks that question in a way that's so compelling. Um, because this, because this whole chapter is, I mean, really, really compelling. Uh, we we cut from this particular interview to um, to uh, Rorschach or Walter Kovacs, as he's called, um, walking past all of these people that he's locked up, and and it's quite harrowing actually the way it's kind of rendered. All of these threats being thrown through the bars, and you know, we're going to do this to you, we're going to do that to you, and but it doesn't seem to bother Rorschach mm. in the slightest bit, and. Um, and that might be because we, we get another, and we cut back again here to Rorschach as a kid, Walter Kovacs as a kid, um, being bullied by these kids uh, about the fact that his mum's a prostitute. And um, uh, and he kind of snaps and he goes crazy, blinds this kid with a uh, with the cigarette that the kid's smoking and um, starts, like, gets one of the kids on the ground. He's, like, biting chunks out of his face. And... Um, and it seems clear that all of this is running through his brain the whole time and that it's this kind of um, offended violence that um, that kind of that really powers Rorschach and so he's yeah. he's kind of sitting in prison um, yeah like he's in prison as this incredibly kind of cold person who's been comfortable with violence for a long time um yeah. What did you think about that 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 little kind of cut flashback? Uh, yeah, I mean it's it's another it's another building block towards making him who he is, isn't it? And the the things he's experienced turning him into the the character he is. And also, I think it's interesting when he has this exchange with the psychiatrist, and he he accuses the he he uses the fact that the psychiatrist has had quite a comfortable life and he's well off as an accusation. Mm. And as a as a reason why um, Rorschach is is better than him, and uh, and he you know the psychiatrist is soft and Rorschach is mm. hard and 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 knows how to handle the world. And it's this idea of if terrible things it's like it's that what doesn't kill you makes you stronger idea. It's actually quite an optimistic one in yeah. one sense that if terrible things happen to you, you're better equipped to deal with terrible things in the future. Mm. And and you've got almost a wisdom from that, from experiencing these kind of horrors, mm-hmm. and you see those from his childhood right through to when he starts his crime fighting phases and the things that he sees mm-hmm. there. And there's definitely that sense of Rorschach sees that as a su- something that makes him superior. The fact that he's been damaged so much yeah. means that he understands things more than somebody like the psychiatrist who's had such a sheltered existence in a way yeah and i think that's really true and i think it reflects on the the title of the, um the title of the chapter because it says the abyss gazes also into you which is the quote from nietzsche mm. and so is that so is whatever doesn't kill you makes you stronger i think um you know it's and it's a very nietzschean idea isn't it the only thing that matters in the world is the the meaning that you impose on it by your own will and any morality that exists is what you generate for yourself there's no such thing as an external kind of objective morality um, and, hmm. and against Rorschach as this poster boy for um, existentialist philosophy, we have Dr. Long, uh, who goes home, kisses his wife, um, and um, and his wife, not a terribly sympathetic character, I have to say. 
She says, he's talking about the case because he's interested in it and presumably he's compassionate because he's a psychiatrist. But what she says is, shh, leave it at the office. You got a nice life, I got a nice life, and nobody else matters. <laughs> a worldview it's not terribly difficult to argue against, I would say. I don't think you have to go straight to kind of Nietzschean philosophy to point out that that's pointlessly selfish thinking. But Yeah, I, um, I, I think she's... Um, not a terribly well developed character in general, to be honest. Uh, yeah. There's, she's basically there just to show his the psychiatrist's descent into sort of, I don't know, his 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 fall, if you like, from being from being relatively cheerful. Because um, mm. <laughs> the, the end, she yeah, she drags him off to bed the first night. And I think the second night, she she basically walks into the room and says, "I want to have sex now." And that felt like does that really happen in real? I've never is that I've never ever experienced, or I've never heard of anyone actually being that kind of blunt with. I mean, in a relationship, yeah. you're more so you come in, oh, how's it going? And then it's more yeah. your actions rather than just coming in and saying, right then, I got some needs. Uh, <laughs> so you want to stick the book down for a minute? It just felt a bit yeah. clunky, didn't it? It was, yeah, absolutely. It was, it was very sort of. You'd have to call it Hollywood scripting, wouldn't you? Where it's mm. like sort of like, what needs to happen now is a request for sex. Yeah. Gosh, and, I suppose I'll just have them say, "Can I have sex now?" Yeah, and and, it, and it's also the uh, when they have the dinner party later as well, and um, yeah. and he's obviously he, he he says about this this horrible murder, um, which mm. kind of stops conversation, but then. Not you'd expect it to be like okay, and then you'd sort of people wouldn't suddenly you'd everyone just, just leave, and then she runs away yeah. from the table as if he's you know he's he's gone completely crazy. It, it all just felt a little bit too on the nose for me. That kind of those kind of homey yeah. scenes with the psychiatrist. Yeah, yeah, they definitely don't construct a terribly realistic image of domesticity as a counter argument mm. to you know this kind of to Rorschach's kind of Nietzschean philosophy. Yeah. Anyway, after this scene, um, uh, we have we finally have R- Rorschach or Kovach saying, "I'll tell you something about Rorschach," mm. and telling about where Rorschach kind of came from. And he talks a bit about how he got his mask and and um, uh, and how you know he heard about a, a horrendous street crime where people just watched it happen. Mm. Um, and uh, um, and this kind of this begins to trouble. The doctor long a little bit more, and then then there's a scene where Rorschach is attacked or is almost attacked in the prison, <laughs> and he he strikes right back with a massive thing full of boiling oil, and it's uh, <laughs> yeah. Sorry, you're gonna say something? No, 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 no. Yeah, I agree. No, sorry. Good, okay, I, and yeah, so it's um, so it's fairly <clears throat> yeah, it's pretty bleak, and um. And this this image finally gets through. The fact that it's pretty bleak finally gets through to Doctor Long. And here we have the scene you were talking about, where his wife comes in and says, "Where's the sex?" And he goes, "I'm working." And and that exchange seems to be so profoundly troubling that he ends up. Doctor Long ends up writing, "You're locked up in here with me." Rorschach said, "He's right, absolutely right." Mm. And I. It seems to me that these two have been for some time. This can't be the first time that they've had an argument about sex, surely. Like, but it seems to have been enough to totally kind of ruin this guy's outlook on on humanity, almost. You know. <laughs> yeah, I love that picture of him second to last. We're just staring. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's like his wife like, just said, "Yo, where's the sex?" He's going, like, "What? <laughs> what? 
What are you? Who are you? What? Who am I? What's going on? Um, anyway, so then we have some more kind of origin story stuff with uh, with Rorschach, and again we see this meeting of the crime fighters where the comedian set the map on fire, and Rorschach speaks very admiringly of the comedian. Hmm. Um, because I think they are different, but they definitely kind of chime to the same kind of philosophical uh, darkness, you know, or, or vacuity. They just don't, you know, they don't believe that anything means anything. Mm. Um, uh, by the way, I, this is my, f- just, the, just the panel, well, two panels before is mm. my uh, favourite artwork of, of Rorschach. The, where him and uh, Naito are standing in front of the little sort of whatever ship he's got. Yeah. And there's it's like in the foreground you've got these like hands of these guys. There's a guy with a chain, a guy with a wrench, a broken bottle, some kind of mace that looks like it's been ripped out the mid- uh, the Middle Ages, a massive yeah. knife. And like sort of nice old sort of looks like he's getting ready for a scrap. And they can't be more than sort of ten yards away, these like baying lunatics with weapons. And yeah. Rorschach's just sort of standing there, legs apart, hands in his pockets, as if, <laughs> as, as if he's waiting for a train or something. <laughs> and it's just that give-a-shit attitude, which is really quite great Absolutely about that character. Immense. Absolutely yeah. immense. Yeah, he's just like sort of, imagine there's going to be a bit of bloodshed here today. <laughs> yeah. Can't be helped. Anyway. Bad time again, is it? <laughs> yeah, that's exactly it, isn't it? Bad that time, mate. Um... So yeah, so we have that, and then we have um, then Rorschach talks. Uh, you know, we have more of kind of the doctors, uh, the more of the doctors kind of decline or embrace of a kind of much more kind of anxious worldview. Mm. And then we have the story um, of where Rorschach believes that he became Rorschach instead of just Kovach in a costume. Mm. Um, and it's this: he's tracking down uh, the kidnapper of a girl and comes across in this guy's house the guy's not there but his two dogs are fighting over what appears to be a human bone mm. and um and he seemingly quite calmly goes upstairs finds a knife comes down kills the dogs and then um uh when the guy comes back chains him up sets the building on fire and makes sure that he doesn't come out and mm. that's 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 your kind of cathartic character creation story which Quite frankly, Knox, I came in a secret podule from Krypton into a cocked fucking hat. Yeah. <laughs> I can't, I, I mean, I'm no comic books expert, but that's got to be amongst the bleakest origin stories in comics, surely. Yeah, I thought it was fantastic. I absolutely loved it. Yeah. Um, and it really, you really do see how he has managed to be through. It builds on the other stuff we saw with his childhood and how he felt that. It's, it's obvious that this is the, yeah this is the breaking point. This is where he decides that catching bad guys and tying them up is soft and is too good for these people, mm. uh, and decides to become an out and out complete vigilante in the sense of all sense of justice runs through him and nobody yeah. else. And um, yeah. yeah, I thought it I thought it worked. I thought it worked really well. And yeah, it's this it's this. Similar to, it's an oft-told story in sort of fiction and drama about detectives and police, that inability to switch off and not take your work home with you as well. Mm-hmm. And that mm-hmm. investigating things like this and seeing the real dark underbelly of humanity mm. will affect you. You can't sort of clock off at seven o'clock and then back to your normal life like the psychiatrist's trying to do. Yeah, Because you can't unsee these things, can you? And you can't pretend they don't exist anymore when you've 
come face to face with them so clearly. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's uh, it's it's astoundingly bleak, isn't mm-hmm. it? And um and and it and actually it comes down to this particular quote as as the building burns. He sums up the philosophy that really crystallises at that moment for him. Um, born from oblivion, bare children hellbound as ourselves go into oblivion. There is nothing else. Hmm. Fucking hell. Yeah, and it's mirrored with the psychiatrist at the end of the chapter. Yeah, yeah, he absolutely. Yeah. He says exactly like, the same thing. Almost as if he's a convert. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's yeah, it's a particularly kind of. It's interesting that Rorschach isn't interested in converting people to this worldview. By the way, he just acts out of it. You know, he mm. kind of makes it, makes, he acts out his belief in it, in mm. the real world, and kind of makes the world more like that. I think. Yeah, um, I also I also like how he calls. Um, he's right. In one thing that one chalk in in his column, is that he really does, have the measure of the psychiatrist insofar as why he's trying to help him because the psychiatrist is all like oh i'm trying you know hopefully i can make you a better person and by extension make the world a better place and he says it's not because of that it's because i'm famous and you want your name in a journal and at the very start of the chapter that's precisely the reason the psychiatrist gives to himself yeah for um for doing it so i thought that was quite nice as well absolutely nails it and um then there's so but long you know this is really getting to him at this point and on his way home he buys a newspaper where there's things have got so bad the president president nixon is saying they'll meet continued soviet aggression with maximum force so shit's really getting serious and um but dinner parties go on even while the world is ending uh but it turns out that his interaction with rorschach has left dr long with the worst dinner table chat in the universe he has no small talk right so one of his dinner guests asks him about the Rorschach case and um, Dr. Long tells him about it and then then leaves home believing that nothing means anything and that's the end of the chapter. <laughs> what did you make of it? <laughs> well, I said before, it's a bit... It feels like a... I don't know, it didn't feel particularly believable in that he says something that's really... Like obviously horrible, mm. and then everybody just leaves. <laughs> oh, you've you... you've exposed the fundamental philosophical hypocrisies at the heart of our complacent lives. I suppose I'd better go before dessert. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I'd imagine. You know, I'd have just thought, especially if these guys are friends, the the other guy would go like, "Oh, that's yeah, that is pretty rough," and then change the subject. Not suddenly everybody just runs away yeah. and his wife decides to leave him it just felt a little bit yeah I could, it makes sense insofar as it's, it's trying to make a point in this chapter isn't it oh. but in terms of getting into the heads of these characters who haven't been particularly well developed because they're only here for a chapter and they're gone yeah it, it felt a little a little weaker than some of the other stuff which is so great about the book yeah that's true i think you know they're clearly there to perform a certain role and they perform that role and that means that they are just kind of ciphers really but he just it's kind of a victim of its own success in that in that sense this book because other characters are so well sketched that when you come up across a few ones that are just stereotypes you're like whoa what you know yeah. it really jars against you doesn't it hmm. um and then uh, then that's the end of the chapter we've ju- we've got a few pieces of paperwork kind of again laying out more of Rorschach's kind of background in this um this kind of trauma and traumatic abused childhood um uh but um but that's it 
and the blood is coming further down the page and it's six minutes to midnight meaning that the song is oh fucking heck uh... <laughs> you can tell me to fuck off for any of these if you want I'm just really enjoying the fact that so far you've always come up with one <laughs> I love how I just I don't even think ahead either I think if any kind of intelligence you'd be like oh let's plan these like, oh, six, uh, six minutes to midnight is that a song? Six minutes to midnight. I don't think that's no, a song. No, I don't think that's a song. I think you just made it up. I think, honestly, you've got a future yeah. in making up faux 80s kind of power yeah. ballads at a certain yeah. point. Six minutes. To, I can't think of anything for that one. All I'm right. a bit disappointed in myself. Oh, that's okay. That's all right. That's all right. It's the end if of this anybody one, else so for next week, you're going to have to come up with some other stuff. Yeah, if anybody's got a suggestion for six minutes to midnight, a song to accompany it, Podcast at gmail.com's email address yeah. while we're on the subject if you actually want to get in touch with any thoughts on the book uh, any bits that we haven't discussed yet or any of the things we have uh, especially if you think we've got something not quite right or you would give us an alternative take on it uh, yeah we'd be really interested to hear from you it's Podcast at gmail.com that's Podcast at gmail.com also we're at sharkliveroyal on twitter there it is there it That's is. That's it for are the we, week. Are we done for this week? We are done for the week. Well then. Well then. Well. Looking forward to... To be honest, I've got to say, that's uh, those three chapters are probably... I think this is where it's really hit, it hits its stride, this book. Yeah. And and they're, they're my, these are my favourite chapters, especially the, the, the first two we talked about today. Mm-hmm. The Doctor Manhattan one and the Rorschach sort of journey. Mm. They're my two favourite characters in the book and um, I really enjoyed spending a bit of time with them this time. Mm-hmm. I agree, I think the um, this kind of alternating structure of going between plot and character development and plot and character development is really good, like I think it's extremely well executed and um, yeah, it makes for such a rich world eh? mm. yeah. yeah definitely. Cool, alright so next week then Next week, in the meantime you know, don't get too down about the, the state of the uh, of the world in Watchmen. Maybe it'll all turn out all right. Not a lot of chance of that, really. We're having some people over for dinner tonight, so, um, so I'm sure that'll go well. <laughs> Stay off the uh, mass murderer <laughs> topic. Right. Do you know what? Good tip, good tip, I'll do that. <laughs> Always brings it down, Ronnie. <laughs>